We read the Word of God this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. In connection with Lord's Day 17 and the resurrection of Christ, we read the first 28 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. This is God's Word. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that is Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. If I may pause just a moment, that word so means that's what we preach, and that's what you believe. That is the resurrection of Christ. This we preach, and this ye believed. Verse 11. Now verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ, as did Brother Captain yesterday. He fell asleep in Christ. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, It is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's the reading of the Scripture. Lord's Day 17 is next in the Catechism's Instruction. Lord's Day 17 in the back of the Psalter on page 10.
As I read it, and you think about it in the context of the catechism, catechism is marching through the Apostles' Creed, what we confess now about Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, died, buried, descended into hell, now rose again. As I read Lord's Day 17, ask yourself what's missing in the catechism's treatment of the resurrection. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, by His resurrection, He has overcome death, that He might make us partakers of that righteousness which He had purchased us for us by His death. Secondly, we are also by His power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. What's missing? Well, what's missing is an attempt to prove that Jesus Christ is actually raised from the dead. You might not notice that's missing, but if you read other treatments of the doctrine of Christ's resurrection, that's what you will find, an attempt to prove that Jesus Christ is really living, that He rose from the dead and now lives. How do you prove the resurrection of Christ from the dead? And maybe it's a better question to ask, why do you believe that He is, in fact, risen from the dead? You do. At least if you mean what you say every Sunday evening, when you say, I believe Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who on the third day He rose again from the dead. You confess that you believe that He rose again from the dead. Now the question is, why do you believe it? You really have two options in answering that question. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead either because science has said it's possible, or you believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible teaches that He did. And really you don't have any other options. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible teaches that He did. And if you say, I will not believe in Jesus' resurrection until science can confirm that it's possible, then you will never believe. You will never believe the resurrection of the dead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I warn you that if any of your faith depends on the confirmation of science for it, then you will have no faith. Because faith does not live by sight, but by the testimony of the Word of God. And if you start with the resurrection of the dead of the Lord Jesus Christ, denied because faith can't be confirmed, because that can't be confirmed by science, then you watch all of the dominoes fall and every other great miracle that the Bible testifies is true. You deny the miracle of the resurrection, you will deny the miracle of the virgin birth. You will deny the miracle of the virgin birth, you will deny the testimony of the Bible with regard to creation. And you will deny, in the end, all of the miracles that the Word of God teaches. You do not believe the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ from the dead because science confirms its possibility. Or someone says it probably could happen scientifically. You believe it because the Word of God teaches it. That's not to say, people of God, that there aren't difficulties because there are all kinds of difficulties. And you face them too. When you, own, when you face your own mortality and you realize this earthly body is decaying and then this earthly body is placed into the grave and you ask yourself, how is it possible that I 
in this body be raised up, then you do not base your faith of your own resurrection on what science says is possible, but on what the Bible says is true. I believe in the resurrection of the body because I believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Abraham did? And then we'll be on to the sermon proper. Remember Abraham? Who against hope, believed in hope, when he was a hundred years old and his wife was ninety years old and both dead as regards the possibility, the physical possibility of having a child so that the promise of God could be fulfilled, he believed. He didn't consider the deadness of his body. And then remember, after God gave him that son, and he took that son in obedience to God and brought him to the top of the mountain and tied him to the altar, and in his own mind and heart sacrificed his son, he did that because he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. Don't forget Abraham. That's how the people of God always live. Not by sight or by the confirmation of science, but by faith. Let's look this morning at Jesus' victorious resurrection. The wonderful reality, and I put that word wonderful in there, not for a filler word, but because it is a wonder. And perhaps you may say the wonder of all wonders. The wonderful reality. In the second place, the central importance of that resurrection. And then in the third place, the triple benefit. And then we come to what the catechism says is the profit of believing Christ's resurrection. The wonderful reality, the central importance, and the triple benefit. When I say that it's not necessary for us to prove the resurrection of Christ, I say it's not necessary for us to prove the resurrection of Christ, but it was necessary for Christ to prove His own resurrection. And He, in fact, did that. And He did that because the apostles needed to be the testimony, uh, the witnesses of that resurrection. Proof is not necessary today. Proofs are not useful today, but they were in the days of the Lord Jesus. When you reason with unbelievers as to the reality of the resurrection of Christ, then you must not try to convince them, persuade them, and wonder why you are not successful in convincing them that Jesus did rise from the dead. You simply need to present to them the facts that the Scripture give to us. And the Scripture gives to us all kinds of facts with regard to the proof of the resurrection of Christ. The disciples didn't have any doubts. Originally they did, but very quickly those doubts were all dispelled. And they were dispelled because, first of all, the angels said to them, He is not here. He's risen from the dead. God declared with God's own voice through the mouth of the angel, He's not here. And then, with their eyes, they saw the tombstone rolled away from the grave. And you children all know that that gravestone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in so that they with their own eyes could see He's not here. And the evidence of the empty grave and the grave clothes lying as they were was a testimony to them that He was, in fact, risen. Risen. And really, there's no answer to that proof. There's no answer at all to that proof. So that even the guards of the Jews who were aware of what had happened could only recourse to a lie, have recourse to a silly lie. His disciples came while we're sleeping and stole his body away. And they all knew that that was not true. In fact, it was the plan of Christ to prove his bodily resurrection by that too. Even the unbelievers knew So that's first, the declaration of the angel about the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses who saw that Jesus wasn't there. There's proof. And then, 
After that, for 40 days, Jesus appeared time and again to many people, those appearances being recorded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of the main reasons Jesus remained on the earth before his ascension was to show that he, in fact, was living. One of the striking appearances to me, I like to imagine that, is that one time he appeared to over 500 brethren at once. Now, I imagine a couple of hundred people here this morning. Double that and then add to that 50 more. What kind of gathering was that? Why would his disciples have been meeting like that? What kind of venue could there have been for them to meet? It doesn't matter to us, but you must picture in your mind 500 people gathered together, and then Jesus appeared to them, and with their eyes, they saw Jesus really was alive. That's marvelous to think about that. And it wasn't fake. It wasn't the kind of modern magician's appearance to you that isn't really true. You may take a camera picture of this only from this angle. I won't permit you to go behind because it's deception. But this was no deception of the Lord Jesus. He really did live. But that's not the important reality here in the first point. We may have any doubts because the Word of God testifies to us that He was risen from the dead. What we must focus on here now for a few minutes is the nature of his resurrection it was a wonder and it was a wonder in three respects and we focus on them now number one it was the very same body that hanged on the cross now that rose from the dead number two it was a real body that rose from the dead and number three it was a changed body It was the same body, it was a real human body, but it was changed. It was, and all of the appearances prove that, the very same body in which he had lived. The very same feet that Mary washed with her tears and dried with her hair. The very same body on which breast John laid his head as they lay around that table at the Last Supper. The very same body into which the soldiers nailed those nails in the hands and in the feet. That very same body is the body that rose again from the dead. And that was a real body, a real human body. And that's what he proved by his appearances to his disciples too. A real human being that was a man of flesh and bones. There's where we sometimes make a mistake and say it wasn't real human body. It wasn't a human body any longer. And yet, if you think of the appearances, how many times didn't Jesus show to them he was real and that it was a real body? Remember one of the appearances, they were terrified. They thought they saw a ghost. That is, they thought they saw just a spirit, some figment of their imagination, or some disembodied person who wasn't real, a real person. And Jesus made sure to them that he was real. First of all, he said, look at me. And he gave them opportunity to look at him and examine him. And then he said, handle me. Look up the passage in Luke 24 in verse 39 handle me. He said, touch me. I want you to see that I am indeed not a ghost. And they were able to put their finger in that hole. And if they wanted to, they could have taken his arm and felt the flesh and bones in his arm. They could have given him an embrace and seen this is not a spirit. It is a real man. And then, after he said, look at me and touch me, he said, and here's one other proof for you. I see you are eating. Give me food to eat and something to drink. And he took that food and he ate it and he took that drink and he drank it. He was a real human being raised from the dead.
And we need to be reminded of that, people, because sometimes we have the idea that when Christ comes again and we are going to be raised from the dead, that somehow we are not going to be real humans anymore. We're just going to be spirits. No, this body that when I die goes down into the grave and that body that when you die is put in the casket and lowered into that vault, that body will be raised. It will be a real human body. It will be yours just as Jesus was raised from the dead. But it was also a changed body and Jesus took pains to make that plain too. He's not the same kind of man and his body is this, not the same kind of body that it was before he died. And that's what you children remember too with regard to his appearances. There the disciples sat hiding in that upper room with the door locked and all of a sudden Jesus appeared in their midst. It was as though he could pass right through the door. He didn't need to open it. That's what he did with the grave. He didn't come out of the opening after the stone was rolled away. You must imagine that right through that rock up into heaven, Jesus' body went because it's not the very same kind of body as it was. And that's why the disciples didn't dare ask him who he was. That's a striking incident too when they saw him one time. You read that. They didn't dare ask him who he was, but they wanted to because they knew something was different. And yet, it wasn't different enough for them to say, it's not you. So they just kept their mouth shut. They didn't dare ask him who he was. And all of those are testimonies that Jesus now is glorified. Same body, real body, but now glorified body. And that's the beauty and wonder of all of this. Jesus didn't come back from the grave as Lazarus and the others had done. But in the resurrection, Jesus went through the grave and through death and came out with a higher, more glorious life. And that's what he showed too. Which means that Jesus did not simply give to us what Adam lost. Jesus didn't simply repair what Adam broke. If Jesus simply was to give us what Adam lost and repair what Adam broke, he would have come back the very same kind of man with no different. But he didn't. He came back a different kind of human being, glorified human being. And that's why you read what you do in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the passage that is after where we stopped reading. The first Adam is of the earth earthy. The second Adam, that's the Lord Jesus, is the Lord from heaven. He raises us to a new level of life and gives to us what Adam never was going to give us and couldn't have given us because he was merely Adam. The second Adam is not merely man. He's also God. That's why we took pains to establish in the last number of weeks that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God who is God the Son. He's real man, but He's not only man. And because He's not only man, but God too, He's able to give to us what we have in our salvation. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you may do that more this afternoon. There are four things that characterize the resurrection body. You look at your body and it's corrupting. It's decaying. After you peak in your 20s, it's going to start going down and down and down. And you all know that and you all feel that. The resurrection body does not decay and is not corruptible. The resurrection body is so different from this body because this body is a body of dishonor. 
there in your youth and when you peak, it might be a body of honor. But after that, it's dishonor. And even before that, what you didn't know is that it's also a body of dishonor. And the resurrection body, the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43, is a body of glory. This body is a body of weakness. You feel strong when you're young. You're not going to feel strong when you get older. And that's a testimony to you that you need another body. This body is a body of weakness. That body is going to be a body of power. And then fourth, the resurrection body is a spiritual body, whereas our body is a natural body. We're going to have this body, but it's going to be changed, just like Jesus. Wonderful reality. But we must preach the central importance of this resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's why I called attention to what Paul said in verse 11 of the chapter. Therefore, whether it were I or they, here's the point. We are going to preach this and you are going to believe this. That is the reason that the apostles needed to be eyewitnesses and really hand witnesses and ear witnesses and all of the rest of the resurrection of Jesus is because they were in a special position in which they needed to preach that resurrection, but more importantly, to write down in the Holy Scripture so that you and I could have it as a permanent record of the fact of the resurrection. They were in a position that no one else was ever in. They needed to see it. They needed to lay down the foundation and be eyewitnesses. Therefore, we preach. And that's important because the resurrection of Christ is central. Now, we all have our opinions, perhaps, as to what's central. And some of you may say the virgin birth is central. Others of you may say the death of Christ is central. The cross of Christ is central. And I am saying to you this morning that the resurrection of Christ is central, and they're all right. They're all right, but they all need to be put together And the reality of Jesus Christ isn't without any of them. And now let's call attention to this one. Why, Paul says in the first verses, did we see? I being the last, Paul said, because I was unfit and unworthy to be a disciple. But he chose me nevertheless and used me nevertheless. Why did we see it? Why? In order that we may be fit to say in our sermons, and to write in our writings, Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, died under the, after the suffering under Pontius Pilate, an accursed death, and then three days later, he rose again from the dead. That's why we had to see him, so that we could preach and teach and write. The central point that can be expressed in one sentence is this, God the Son, who appeared as a man, suffered and died as a substitute for us, and then rose again from the dead. A run-on sentence, perhaps, but all of that is necessary to hear the truth of the gospel. And it ends with this, he rose again from the dead. I'm not sure we do justice to that. But let's do justice to that today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives and then see what we may preach about the Lord Jesus Christ and how this was central, not first of all for us, but for Him. Let me call your attention to what the Apostle Paul begins the book of Romans with. When you think of the book of Romans, what do you imagine? Justification by faith. What else do you imagine? Election, predestination, total depravity. But you must start somewhere else, and that's here in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, and now I paraphrase the first verse, I've called to be an apostle. I've been separated unto God, the gospel of God. And the gospel concerns his son, verse 3, our Lord, who was... Here's a couple of weeks ago in the catechism. 
made of the seed of David according to the flesh. A real man of that genealogy. And then this. Declared to be the Son of God. That is, He's the Son of God. Not only man, but also God. He's the Son of God. And how does Paul describe how that declaration was made? By the resurrection from the dead. That is, how do you know that He was God the Son? How do you know He wasn't a mere man? How do you know He's the Savior of His people? Because He was raised from the dead. That's how you know. And now everyone knows that Jesus Christ is God the Son. This is the declaration of it. He raised Himself from the dead. And God raised Him from the dead. This is what we preach about Jesus. This truth of the resurrection validates His claim to be who He says He is. It's incontestable. No one can argue with it. It's true. He's not only alive, but He's alive because He's God the Son. The Word of God teaches us that you look at the resurrection of Christ from two perspectives. One perspective is that God in heaven raised Him from the dead. God performed a mighty work upon Him and gave Him life who was dead. The other perspective in the Word of God is that He Himself raised Himself from the dead and that's because He Himself is God the Son. Remember what he said to his disciples in John 10, I have power to lay my life down and I have power to raise it up again. I and my Father are one. That's why. I have power, authority, ability to lay my life down. Watch me. And I have power to raise myself up again from the dead. Watch me. And the reason is that I and my Father are one. And now you begin to see why the resurrection is a powerful declaration that He's God the Son. He's divine. You can't deny it. And that's why the guards and their authorities said, say He was stolen. He didn't rise from the dead. He isn't living because they knew that if He were truly living, that they were in revolution and rebellion Because if He is living, then He is who He said He was. And we are in unbelief because we're not trusting in Him. We're denying Him. We're rejecting Him. In fact, we crucified Him. And we are in trouble. Because the resurrection testified that He is, in fact, God. And that's why there's such opposition to the resurrection of Christ today, too. Now, it's going to come in different forms Maybe in our generation a different form than the generations that preceded us. But that's why there's such opposition. Because everyone knows that if Jesus did rise from the dead, then He is who He claimed to be. And we must be worshiping Him because He's God. Not a God. Not one of many gods. But God. Because no one else has ever been raised from the dead. So prove it, they say, scientifically. And you can't. And therefore, they are in denial of who God is in the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one way to deny the declaration of Christ in His glory and power and dignity. Couldn't have happened. Therefore, it didn't happen. And the other way is to say... Well, he probably did, but many others do too. And so today's science fiction and all of the obsession with the paranormal say probably, probably he rose from the dead. Other people rise from the dead and that's what zombies are or whatever else it is in science fiction and the paranormal. People died and now they're living again. And so when you say that the Savior of your religion died and was living again, then He's just one of many who've done the very same thing. And all of it is an attempt to deny the central importance of the Lord Jesus Christ as the God who must be worshipped. And the only God 
who was able to save. He was declared to be by the resurrection the Son of God. This is what we need to preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. But in close connection to that, read again Romans 1 verse 4. He's declared to be the Son of God with power. With power. It wasn't power that raised him that the apostle is talking about, but it, and it was power that raised him, but the apostle is talking about something different. He now, he now is the one who has all power and all authority to rule and all might and all dominion and all ability to do what he decrees to do. He is the Son of God with power. And that's what we preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. That comes out when the catechism says that he's overcome death. You remember that expression there. It's in connection with our uh, benefits from him, but it starts out by saying that by his resurrection, he's overcome death. And that's an evidence of his power because of how great a power death is. You always know the power of someone when you see the power of the enemy that they vanquished. Let me use a number of illustrations this morning to make that clear. And perhaps some of you like basketball, so you know this one. Just a couple of days ago, a little pipsqueak school called St. Peter's, 2,600 students took down a giant in Kentucky. Maybe you don't care about basketball. I don't really either so much. You want to know the power of little St. Peter's? School over there in New Jersey, you measure that power by the power of the giant that they took down in Kentucky. You want to measure the power of anyone, you measure their power by measuring the power they defeated. So go back to the wars in history. Think of the might of Japan and their air force. Think of the forces of Hitler. Think of the Axis nations. And then think of the power of those who defeated them and the great power that took them down. You measure the power of those that took them down by the power of those that were taken down. And there are all kinds of examples of that in human life. And even perhaps you say, yeah, we understand that because sometimes at school there's a bully in the playground and nobody will take him on. They're all afraid of him. And then comes another boy, maybe new to the school who does what needs to be done, but probably ought not be done. But you measure the power of that new boy who came to the school by the power of the bully that nobody was willing to take on. Now, here's the reality. Here's our enemy, death. It's a hideous power. It's a mighty strength. And the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is measured by the power of the enemy that he conquered. That's why we sang Psalm 2. He's victorious. He's the conquering king. There's nobody like our Lord Jesus Christ. The issues were life and death. We use that expression so often we do not understand what it means. The issues are life and death. They were. And they are. There were never Issues so crucial as the issues in this fundamental battle. Righteousness and unrighteousness. Truth and lie. Life and death. And now underline that. Everlasting life and everlasting death. And now life, his name is Jesus took on death and hell and the grave. And life was victorious over death, pulled the stinger out of death and defeated death and put his knee on his neck as it were, his foot upon his body and triumphed over death. And all of you who are in him, his name is Jesus. All of you who trust him, his name is Jesus 
have with him the victory over death. That's the crucial importance. That's the magnifying of the name of Jesus. No one is so great until you see the enemy that they vanquished. And now he is great. Imagine, to go back to those illustrations, what that little pipsqueak of a school is going to have given to them when they go back to New Jersey. There will be parade, there will be ticker tape, there's going to be banners. They're never going to be forgotten. The giant killers. Their names are going to be put up in banners in the gym. The date's going to be there. All the little kids are going to grow up remembering they defeated the giant. Maybe books will be written about them in the school history and lore. Who forgets the defeat of the Nazis and Hitler and Japan? Books are written. Honor is given. Parades are had. No one's going to forget the victors over the enemy. And no one must forget this victor over the enemy called death. Feed him, will you? Put up banners him for, for him, will you? Speak about him, will you? And don't let another generation come up in the church except a generation that knows that history, never forgets it. Put up banners, as it were, the Lord Jesus, great victor 2,000 years ago now, and some write about him, speak about him, never forget him. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and he is the greatest conqueror of any conquerors because he faced death and defeated death for us. That's why we preach Jesus. That's why all of our messages need to be focused on that. And though sometimes the messages are on the periphery, we perhaps may say all of the messages that we preach need to have their focus in the birth and the suffering and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of our sermons are meaningless unless they're tied to Christ and His victory. Catechism lessons, pastoral calls, conversations over coffee, all of them ought to be centered on our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really why we have the schools that we do. Not because we are opposed to the teaching of evolutionism only, and we want the doctrine of creationism taught, though that's fundamental. Not because we say there has to be prayer there, and if you go to a public schools, a public school, there may be prayer there, although prayer is important too. But because everything that's taught needs to be taught in light of this great reality, the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is life over against death. Now, think of all of the subjects in a school curriculum and start with biology because that's life, isn't it? The study of life. What is life? Where did it come from? How is it sustained? Why does it die? Why do cells multiply? How do they multiply? Why do they die? And tie it all to the light of life, our Lord Jesus Christ. You study all of biological sciences in the light of Jesus. History is meaningless, except you see the focal point of history in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ right in the center of it all. You better not teach anything about history unless you see it in the light of the Lord Jesus who still today is in heaven controlling all things and bringing all things to Him, back to Him. Because all things were made by Him, Colossians 1 says, and all things were made for Him and by Him. All things consist. They all hang together because of the Lord Jesus. You can't teach any science any science, any study, history, biology, geography, mathematics, you can't teach anything unless you understand the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and He lives and He's coming again. That's why we have our Christian schools and we're thankful for our Christian schools. And He overcame death Declared to be the Son of God with power, He overcame death now for us. 
And now we spend just five minutes looking at those. He overcame death for us. For us. Think about that. For me. And for you. He overcame death for Himself. He's the Lord of glory. All praise is going to be given to Him. But by us. Who have the benefits. That He gained for us. When He rose again from the dead. If we have hope only in this life. Then we're of all men most miserable. 1 Corinthians 15. But you're not miserable because you have hope and you can live in hope. For us, He rose. You don't have to live very long before you come close to death and you hear it and you smell it and you feel it. Sometimes little children have to go to funerals. And they ask hard questions about death. And they realize that someday they're going to face death. It's good for children to do that. To ask questions. To think about death. When you get a serious illness, you're going to think about your own death. Some of the people of God are going to bury a loved one Wednesday morning. Death. It's very real. We've gone through it. We're going to go through it again. Some of God's people feel death working in their body more powerfully now than they ever have and they're going to die but here's the testimony of the word of God we have a pledge that this our body the same body a real body is going to come out of the grave because of the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to see him with these eyes these we're going to feel him with these hands We're going to hear Him with these ears because we're going to be alive with His resurrection life. Read again 1 Corinthians 15. We have a pledge of our blessed resurrection. If you ask me to explain how, I do not know. Science can't explain it either, though. Some were eaten by lions, digested. And then what? Others were thrown to the sea and eaten by fish. Some were burned at the stake and went up as smoke into the atmosphere. And now what? And all of us, if we don't die that way, are going to go to the grave and be decomposed. That's not pleasant to think about, but here's the point. How am I going to be raised from the dead and in this body live? Don't depend on science to explain that. Live by faith and say, I believe that I am going to live because Jesus lived. He's life and I'm in Him. Second, we live now. We even are alive today. We have been raised up to a new life. You feel that new life, don't you? And that's why when you die, before you go unconscious, though there is some hesitation and fear, you say, I'm going to live, and I know I am going to live because I live now. I'm alive now. I have faith now. I believe now. And the evidence of that faith in me now is that I love Him. I believe Him. And I love you. And I want to live with you. And that wouldn't happen if I were not alive spiritually. We, by His power today, are already raised up to a new life. Death works in me, but so does life. And the life that I now live is the life of the Son of God. And that's a power Described by Ephesians chapter 3, that now works in us. And according to that power that now works in us, He's able to do all things for us. Number one, the benefit is I have a pledge of my resurrection. Number two, I'm alive already now. And number three, those are true because I'm a partaker of His righteousness. The Catechism says... He is victorious over death in order to make us partakers, first of all, of His righteousness. 
You see, because when we go home and have fears, it's not the fear so much that we're going to have pain and in this body die. It's this fear that I am guilty and I have to stand before the judge, the great God, and I'm a sinner. And here's the gospel for you and me. Righteous, innocent, forgiven, pure, white, holy, with the purity and holiness and righteousness of Christ himself. And because we have Christ's righteousness, we also now have his life. And someday our bodies will be raised up from the dead because we have Christ. Now, will you live in that hope? And will you talk about that hope afterwards? And will you let that comfort and knowledge calm you down when you're afraid and shut your mouth when you're tempted to say things that are hurtful? And will you let the knowledge of that and the blessedness of that make you say something that you never otherwise would have said to somebody you don't want to talk to and maybe you're angry with? Will you live with that kind of hope? And as the Apostle John said, if you have that hope, then purify yourself as he is pure. And live in such a way that we as a congregation, you as a congregation, can be one in him. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. May it be a power to raise us from spiritual death and give us hope. May it be a power to illumine our minds so that we see that there is no hope in ourselves and no hope for us apart from Christ. And may it be a power so that faith may have been worked in us and strengthened in us and perhaps for the first time in some created. God, by thy word, mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead, raise us from the dead every day. That mighty power that infused into Jesus life, infused life of Jesus into us. May we be a people then that testify by our word and by our conduct, that we belong to him. In his name we pray, amen.